Welcome to Tisky Sour. We were hoping tonight to be going through line by line the Sue Gray report for you. Um, that's not yet out, but we do still have a hell of a lot of news to talk about. A Met Police investigation into Downing Street, the horrific actions of Met Police against a philosophy academic, the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party rebuffing Jeremy Corbyn and Jordan Peterson failing to understand climate change and in fact failing to understand what the climate is. It's an unmissable clip that we're going to close the show with. I'm joined all evening by Dahlia. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm good. I feel like the Sue Gray report is like more awaited than, I mean, it's not more awaited, almost as awaited as like Rihanna's next album. Like I feel like it's just, she keeps promising to deliver and just leaving us in, in anticipation. It's the nerds version of, of Rihanna's new album that never quite arrives. We are still awaiting the release of the Sue Gray report into Downing Street parties that could determine the fate of the Prime Minister. The investigation is said to have concluded, and it is expected imminently, potentially tomorrow, potentially on Monday. However, while we wait for that release, there are lots of developments to dig our teeth into, including this announcement from the Met Commissioner yesterday. Firstly, of the information provided by the Cabinet Office inquiry team, and secondly, my officer's own assessment, I can confirm that the Met is now investigating a number of events that took place at Downing Street and Whitehall in the last two years in relation to potential breaches of COVID-19 regulations. Cressida Dick went on to say that while the Met would not normally investigate, investigate past breaches of COVID-19 regulations, it was justified in this case as under concern were the most serious and flagrant types of breaches. That threshold was met, she said, because there was evidence those involved knew or ought to have known rules were being broken, and crucially, that a failure to investigate would significantly undermine the legitimacy of the law. It's still unclear exactly which parties the Met are looking into and whether the Prime Minister will be interviewed either as a suspect or a witness. But at PMQs today, Keir Starmer was quick to emphasise that the mere existence of a police investigation into Downing Street should pour shame on the Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, having got the material from Sue Gray, the police had to take a decision as to whether what they had before them was the most serious and flagrant types of breach of the rules. If members want to laugh at that, laugh. The police spelt out, the police spelt out what they meant. They decided on the material they've already got, that they've already got, that those involved knew or ought to have known what they were doing was an offence and that there was little ambiguity around the absence of any reasonable defence. Does the Prime Minister really not understand the damage his behaviour is doing to our country? Mr Speaker, I hope that the Right Honourable Gentleman understands uh, that although the issue that he raises uh, is important, uh, there is simply no way, as he knows, as a lawyer, that I can comment on uh, the investigation that he is currently, is currently taking place. But what, I but what he also knows, he talks about the most serious issue, but the, he talks about the most serious issue before uh, the public today and before the world today. It's almost as though he was in ignorance of the fact, uh, Mr Speaker, that we have a crisis on the borders of Ukraine. And I and I can, I, can tell him, I can tell him what is actually, what is going on in the cabinet room of this country is that the UK government, no Mr Speaker, the UK government is bringing the West together so that we have, led by this government and this 
Prime Minister and our Foreign Secretary and Defence Secretary to bring the West together to have the toughest possible package of sanctions to deter President Putin from what I think would be a reckless and a catastrophic invasion. That is what this government is doing. We're getting on with the job and I think he needs to raise his game, frankly. Every single time Keir Starmer asked a question about police investigations and parties in Downing Street, Boris Johnson changed the subject. But he adopted a different tactic with the SNP's leader in Westminster, Ian Blackford. Every moment that the Prime Minister lingers, every nick in this death by a thousand cuts is sucking attention from the real issues facing the public. Tory cuts, Brexit and the soaring cost of living have pushed millions of families into poverty. The impending national insurance tax hike hangs like a guillotine while they eat cake. This is nothing short of a crisis. And the only route out, the only route to restore public trust is for the Prime Minister to go. How much longer will Tory MPs let this go on for? How much more damage are they willing to do? It is time to get this over with. Show the Prime Minister the door. Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, I I don't know uh, who's been eating more cake. That was Boris Johnson appearing to fat shame Ian Blackford. They haven't really matured at all since their days in public school. Dahlia, the maximum punishment for these alleged breaches would be a fixed penalty notice, so a fine of £100 or so. No one's going to do prison time. Some of the Prime Minister's allies are comparing it to a speeding ticket. Do you think it would be a big deal if Downing Street staff or even Boris Johnson himself were to receive one? First of all, what a classic move to uh, the minute he's in hot water to declare that the West is in crisis and only he can, can save it. Really super cringy. But I think, you know, this is the, the sort of the fundamental issue about our political system, that when it comes to the conduct and the attitudes of our political elites, it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what you can um, and can't get away with. Obviously, a £100 fine is an insult when it comes to these people. That's money they'll find in the back of a sofa. Doesn't really do do much in materially. Symbolically, obviously, it does much more. But but the question shouldn't necessarily be, you know, what is the punishment? It should be how do we actually create a system in which this contempt for the public, this contempt for the pol- for political norms, for any sort of moral values, is prevented and it doesn't happen again. Because as we've sort of talked about throughout throughout this this crisis. This is not the first time Boris Johnson has showed us who he is. He has showed us this kind of contempt, this kind of recklessness throughout his political career. And yet look how far he was able to come. But I think another thing here that, you know, we're turning now, people are turning now to the Met for some kind of system of accountability. But we've come to realise really in this in this crisis that when it comes to the states, when it comes to the powerful, accountability is a very closed circle. People are noticing that the very agents that are either complicit in or directly involved in infractions seem to be the only agents that we are supposed to rely upon for accountability. So we see that it's the police 
who saw it as their role to provide security for these parties, to defend these parties with their, you know, with with police resources, and now the ones being invited to investigate those parties. We see that for information, for framing, we rely on a media that is personally and politically deeply enmeshed with the very politicians that they're supposed to be reporting on. And when it comes to things like breaking the ministerial code and and all of this, it seems that the only person to enforce that power is the prime minister himself, even when he is the subject of those concerns. And so there seems to be these kind of endless informal and formal avenues through which those who hold real power in this country, you know, not the Allegra Strattons of the world, not, not not those, the real power, they have these endless avenues to slime their way out of consequences. And I think that that close circle has always existed, but it's becoming very visible in this particular scandal. And, you know, when it comes to what would happen if this report or if this investigation finds wrongdoing, the que- I think the question that we need to ask, we need to take a step back here, which is, what is the desired consequence? What is the pathway out of the conditions that created this scandal, the, the the one rule for them, one rule for us kind of logic that underpins how this government and the state more broadly operates. No, okay, we have Boris resign, say, you know, that's the most extreme case. Then what? Rishi Sunak becomes prime minister. And then, so that's the man who wrote off four million pounds of fraudulently claimed COVID packages, COVID relief packages by companies, and yet wanted to go ahead on universal credit cuts because of this idea that working class people shouldn't be allowed an extra 20 quid a week that they might not deserve. So does that really strike a blow at the kind of imbalance of power and the corruption that seems to lie at the heart of how the state operates? No, it doesn't. So that's why it's important to kind of to take a step back when we see things like the Met Police threatening or at least going on, going ahead to investigate politicians, is if these are the mechanisms of accountability that we are relying on, it's no wonder that we, the kind of incestuous nature of these mechanisms of accountability, it's no wonder that we keep ending up with people governing us who who have this kind of contempt and who have this one rule for them, one rule for us mentality. And so that that's really my response to this announcement, this announcement from the Met. The people we're relying on aren't particularly reassuring in this instance. So you've got Sue Gray. We've talked about her on previous shows. She's always called the person doing this independent investigation, although she's often been fairly inclined, let's say, to keep government secrets a secret. She's not someone who is committed to a, a radical vision of, of governmental transparency. We've then got Cressida Dick, who we know in general is someone who who likes to defend the establishment, to defend the powerful. They were very, very reluctant to open this investigation. It took them a long time. And I hate to tell you that the people who have the real power in this situation are Tory backbench MPs. Whatever Cressida Dick says, whatever Sue Gray says, it is going to be those backbench MPs who will be able to topple Boris Johnson if they so choose, which makes it no surprise that Boris Johnson is quite interested in having 
persuasive conversations, let's say, with them. Anushka Astana today tweeted uh, that she was hearing the Prime Minister is telling MPs who say they are getting more time with the PM than they ever imagined, that this is a media labour witch hunt, that he's been through worse before and that he's bounced back before and will do so again. <sighs> Those MPs would have to be really, really stupid to believe any of that, right? Because... What's really specific about this row, about these parties, is that it is being driven by the public, I think. There have been lots of people in politics and in the media who have sort of thought at times, are we, you know, are we, are we covering this too much? Are we talking too much about these parties? And then they've seen that, actually, this is the one thing that has grabbed the public attention more than anything over the past couple of years, potentially since Dominic Cummings went to Barnard Castle, because... That experience of us following those lockdown rules, it was so significant to all of our lives. And to see that the people who made those rules just carelessly broke them, that is something which, while you have all of these Tories MPs saying, oh, you know, there are bigger fish to fry. Why are we talking about these parties? This is cut through for a reason. It's cut through for a reason because it shows general voters how politicians feel about them, which is why this isn't a media witch hunt or a labor witch hunt. And I think it's why Boris Johnson won't bounce back from this. And I think everyone knows that because people have seen that he has betrayed them, not just betrayed them, he sort of stuck up two fingers at them when they were at their most vulnerable, really. People really gave themselves over to the state during the kite of that coronavirus pandemic, not going out of their houses, foregoing all the sorts of social events, meaningful events that make people's life worth living. And all the while, they were breaking the rules. That, that's why he's not going to bounce back. You'd have to be a complete idiot if you're an MP and you go visit Boris Johnson and you're so starstruck that the man is willing to give you five minutes of his time that you'll believe that he'll bounce back from this and this is all a witch hunt. I mean, if you do believe that, I mean, you know, these are Tory backbench MPs, I don't have much faith in them anyway. But that is going to be the big story over the next few days and weeks. Will they get the bottle to actually take this guy on? The endless revelations about Downing Street parties in lockdown has seriously damaged the reputation of the Prime Minister. But there's another group of MPs who've also been sullied, those stupid enough to back him up. Credit where it's due, though. While Boris Johnson's defenders may be shameless, you can't fault them for creativity. With each new leak about rule breaches, their excuses have had to become ever more imaginative. These are the politicians we think have risen to the challenge. The Prime Minister's diary is like no other. It is extraordinarily busy. It's put together in five-minute blocks and he will bounce from phone calls with foreign leaders to national security meetings to meetings on domestic policy to meetings with advisors on COVID. And then someone comes and grabs him and takes him out of his study and briefs him in the 30 seconds whilst he's walking down the stairs on what he's going into next. I'm not suggesting for a second that he didn't know the rules. I am accepting that he didn't know that the event that he was about to walk into was breaking. The leadership of Boris Johnson this country has had has been so brilliant that he has got us through this incredibly difficult period and he's got all the big decisions right. We have opened up faster than any other European country thanks to the Prime Minister, and I'm honoured to be under his leadership. It's a very funny party that less... It's uh, less than 10 minutes with colleagues you work with all the time. People broke off, I understand, from work, uh, went to see the Prime Minister, gave him a cake, and then went back to work. And I bet, you know what political people are like, they probably talked about work when they were eating their bit of cake. I just don't recognise that as 
a party. And if that's the sort of parties you go to, they're not much fun, are they, that less than 10 minutes and from work colleagues when you're talking about working disappear again. Gathering you are doesn't really, matter. really thinking that the British people care about that. They realise that the Prime Minister got the first vaccination that saved billions of lives across the world. He took us through COVID. He nearly lost his life. He worked extremely hard for the people. All the hours and hours he worked. And you're worrying about less than 10 minutes when work colleagues brew a piece of cake. When Europe stands on the brink of war and there is a cost of living crisis, can we please have a sense of proportion yeah. over the Prime Minister yeah. being given... A piece of cake in his own office by his own staff. And you're confident that it's okay for a prime minister who makes the rules to break the rules and thus break the law. That's okay. No, of course it's not. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, I'm sure there are ministers that get get parking tickets and speed fines too. They break the. You know, lots of people break the law in small ways, sometimes unintentionally. Uh, and I just think this is not. This is, you know, he's not robbed a bank. The Prime Minister was out on visits. He came back. He was working in the Cabinet room. People came in, presented him with a cake on his birthday. They sang happy birthday. He was there for about 10 minutes. It was not a premeditated, organised party in that sense um, that the Prime Minister himself decided to have. What invites were sent out? Well, he, as far as I can see, he was, in a sense, ambushed with a cake. <laughs> they came to his office with a cake. They sang happy birthday. He was there for 10 minutes. I don't think most people looking at that at home would characterise that as a party. So Boris Johnson didn't know it was a party. And even if he did, he's been such a great leader, he should be allowed to break the law. But anyway, it really wasn't a party. Just work colleagues gathered together to eat birthday cake and sing happy birthday. Though, even if it was a party, we should have a sense of proportion. But sure, it, it was a party. At least he didn't rob a bank. No, of course, it, of course it wasn't a party. It was a cake ambush. Nadine Doris threw in her two cents too, saying, so when people in an office buy a cake in the middle of the afternoon for someone else they are working in the office with and stop for 10 minutes to sing happy birthday and then go back to their desks, this is now called a party. Whether or not you called it a party, it was against the lockdown rules, which you guys wrote. That's the issue. Of course, where I agree with Nadine Doris, this, this doesn't sound like an amazing party. But having 30 people sing... Happy birthday, even for 10 minutes, it was something that many people passed up. They passed it up because they were told to pass it up. One of them was Josephine, aged seven, who wrote this letter to the Prime Minister in March 2020. So she wrote, Dear Prime Minister, I want to let you know it is my birthday today, but I am staying at home because you asked us to. I think mummy and daddy might have to cancel my party, but I don't mind because I want everybody to be okay. Please keep working hard to keep us all well. Are you remembering to wash your hands? Lots of love. Josephine, aged seven, in brackets, today. Very sweet there. Boris Johnson replied, Dear Josephine, Happy birthday! I am glad to hear you are staying at home, though I am sorry to hear about your party. We have all got to do our bit to protect the NHS and save lives, and that is really what you are doing, so well done. You are setting a great example. We are working around the clock to keep people safe, and if we work together, we can send coronavirus packing. And once we have done that, you can definitely have a party with your friends. In answer to your question, I am regularly washing my hands with soap and water for 20 seconds, the time it takes to sing happy birthday twice. Best wishes, Boris Johnson. 
if it only takes 20 seconds to sing happy birthday twice, then that 10 minutes he spent at that cake party starts to sound a little bit longer, doesn't it? What were you doing for the other nine and a half minutes? Boris Johnson there saying you were setting a great example. He is, of course, right, or he was right. She was. It is just a shame a seven-year-old can set a better example than the most powerful man in Britain. Dahlia, who comes off worse from all of this? Boris Johnson, who broke those rules, it was offensive to do so, but I suppose breaking rules and having a party, at least it's kind of like a normal human thing to do. I think standing up and calling it a cake ambush and saying that at least he didn't rob a bank, in a way, it's kind of more embarrassing than the original crime, isn't it? I mean, this has been the most tedious week of watching the most boring people in the world (laughs) having an argument about what is and is not a party. I'm just like, oh my God, it's like nails on a chalkboard. That whole package is just hugely embarrassing to watch. I, but obviously, you know, that is part of the course of, of being in Boris Johnson's cabinet or being in Boris Johnson's government. I've seen people defend him for, for much worse and for much more absurd reasons. But, you know, reading that, that letter from that, that young girl, I, I've said this before and, and I'm going to say it again because I think it's an important point that gets lost in a lot of this tedious and embarrassing and absurd conversations that we're having about whether or not it's possible to be ambushed by a cake or, you know, whether 10 minutes doing this or that is a party or not. The point is, is that for those of us who, unlike the prime minister, who, unlike our government, did abide by those rules and did stay at home and did take care to, you know, even if we didn't necessarily feel like we were particularly vulnerable to the virus ourselves, we sacrificed things and we gave things up so that those who are vulnerable can be okay. And in order to retain the integrity of our NHS service, for those of us who did that, we did the right thing and we should not regret that. We, we saved lives by following the scientific advice. And essentially, even though now it can feel like, oh, why did we bother? Oh, we shouldn't have bothered. No, it was incredibly important. And it shows us again, as I've said before, we are better than our government. And it's important to remember that because there's a good chance that at some point in the not too distant future, there will have to be some kind of level of restrictions or collective public health effort, like, for example, getting another booster dose of the vaccine that will require us all to do our bit and to have faith that everyone else is doing the same in order to make it effective. And it's important to maintain a sense that if we had to do it all over again, we would do it the same way because it was ultimately the right thing to do. And that is, in a sense, the dangerous precedent that is being set, that has been set by this government, that will be difficult to to shake off. And it's this breaking down of communality and of solidarity and the sense of even if everyone is doing something as part of a public good or a collective effort if you can get away with not doing it then it's then you should do that because you know it's this kind of very uh game theory way of of looking at the world it's actually very thatcherite of you know viewing seeing it as yourself as separate from the collective effort as somehow as an individual in a little siloed box Because the next time that we are in a crisis, whether it's a public health crisis, whether it's a climate related crisis, whether it's a financial crisis, and people are being asked to do their bit in order, in the name of a greater good, 
in order to protect their communities and particularly to protect those that might be more marginalized or more vulnerable than them. We don't want people to think that, oh, well, last time I did that, it turned out that I was a mug or it turned out that the very people setting those rules were doing something else. And so I think it's important that we try and take a moment to remember that rather than over-focusing on how clownish these MPs look as much as, as much as it is entertaining to watch them debase themselves. In the name for what? For Boris Johnson? A man with a haircut like that? I mean, it's embarrassing. No, it's an important point. I mean, because lots of people are using what we've now learned. There's two ways of looking at it. You know, they sh- they shouldn't have broke the rules because the rules were important to protect us from coronavirus. Other people saying they've just proven that the rules were always stupid and we should never have had the rules. I think there, there are nuances and subtleties when it comes to certain aspects of the rules, which are potentially a bit more crude than they needed to be. But I do, you know, on the on the whole, fall on the... Uh, the side of the spectrum where at that period in time, it was pretty important actually for there to be some you know, social distancing measures that we did all follow and, and most of us did. We've got one more clip for you because it is, it's a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel, but Labour MPs haven't been passing up the opportunity to savage Boris Johnson and his allies. Speaking on Newsnight, here's Shadow Attorney General Emily Formbury. Edward Lee said in Parliament today, when Europe is on the brink of war, I think to your point, when there is a cost of living crisis, can we please have a sense of proportion over the Prime Minister being given a piece of cake in his own office by his own staff? But it isn't the Prime Minister being given a piece of cake. It's the Prime Minister coming to Parliament and saying, I'm disgusted. I understand that there may have been a party. The the rules might have been broken. I don't think they were, but I'm going to have an inquiry. When he knew all along that he had been involved in many, many parties and he had lied to us and he covered up and he kept covering up. And that is what has lost trust of the British people. And he now doesn't have the authority to be able to deal with the cost of living crisis with the war in Ukraine. He doesn't have the authority to lead. And really, Conservative MPs, in the end, they have... I mean, Leila and I can do what we can, but we have a majority of 80 of Conservative MPs. It's up to Conservative MPs. Well, it's up to Boris Johnson's conscience. But if he's not prepared to exercise his conscience and and go, it's up to Tory MPs now to leave. And frankly, I would suggest to viewers tonight to write, if they have a Tory MP, write to your MP and tell them what you think. This is definitely one of those controversies where I I would much prefer to see Emily Formbury as leader of the Labour Party than Keir Starmer, just because I think it would be way, way more entertaining at PMQ. She, she loves having a go at that guy, and she can do it very, very effectively. Well, let's go straight on to our next story. In May 2013, Kosh Kadhaf tried to hand a legal advice card to a black 15-year-old who was being stopped and searched by the Met Police. Knowing her rights, Duff refused to give the police her personal details. In response, she was arrested, taken to a police station and strip-searched. That strip-search was traumatic. Three female officers bound Duff by her hands and feet, pinned her to the floor and cut her clothes off with scissors. Duff has described the ordeal as like a sexual assault. It also left her with a number of visible injuries, such as this bruising on her arm. Duff was ultimately charged with obstructing and assaulting the police, but was cleared at a trial after photographs of the injuries she sustained during the strip search were shown. The police were unable to say how she'd received them. On the stand, they offered these opinions. When people come in contact with police, they just start hurting themselves. And if someone's not complying, not giving their details, they've either got learning difficulties or something to hide. 
Really, really concerning statements there. Duff would go on to lodge a number of complaints against the force, but a misconduct hearing in 2018 found the officer who authorised the strip search had acted properly. However, almost nine years after the event, Koshka Duff has now been awarded compensation of £6,000 and an apology from the police. This development followed the release of CCTV footage showing police following the strip search talking about Duff in an extremely degrading manner. You need the fumigator. <laughs> No. no, she's not actually. Yeah, she is. Is it? Following a review of that footage and on behalf of the Metropolitan Police, Inspector Andy O'Donnell wrote to Duff saying, whilst the Metropolitan Police Service strives to maintain the highest professional standards, incidents occasionally arise when the level of service falls below that standard. I have considered the background to your claim and am satisfied that on this occasion, the level of service did fall below the requisite standard. I would like to take this opportunity to sincerely and unreservedly apologise for the sexist, derogatory and unacceptable language used about you and for any upset and distress this may have caused. You'll note there the apology is for language used, not for the actual arrest and strip search, which the Met still maintains was justified. I spoke earlier to Koshka Duff about what her experience and that subsequent apology tells us about the Metropolitan Police. By apologising when finally they're caught out, the police certainly want to present the view that they're, they're making changes. You know, when we see Sadiq Khan tweeting about the case to say it's right that the Met have apologised. We see that precisely falling into the the strategy that the Met propaganda, the police propaganda department are pushing, which is, oh, we can come, we can come not too badly out of this by saying that we're bad on this on this one exceptional occasion. Um, but um, the idea that you know, institutional racism, institutional misogyny are being addressed in policing. Well, you know, tell that to the the people who were being beaten over the head when they attended the vigil for Sarah Everard or to the, you know, the, the family and friends of Stephen Lawrence who were spied on by undercover police officers. When they're challenged, they do everything that they can to disrupt, discredit and destroy movements for for change. So why on earth should we believe that they are committed to making that change? I think it also says something about sexism and misogyny more broadly, which is that misogynist attitudes are not just held by men. You know, we're, we're all affected by what are the, the, the kind of dominant oppressive attitudes and we can all be complicit in perpetuating them and enforcing them, inflicting them on other people. You know, if you don't resist, then it doesn't count as violence. And if you do resist, then you're asking for it. Um, well, that basically justifies any kind of rampage that they 
that they care to go on. Um, and I, yeah, I want to connect it with the ways that the victims and survivors of gendered and sexualized violence are put on trial themselves always for the, the, the tiniest details of their behavior and their person and just seeing how that happens in the cases of police violence likewise. The whole thing just seems completely rotten from top to bottom, doesn't it? It's a harrowing case, but it is one of many, many, many cases of this sort of what has become this kind of pedestrian abuse that takes place at the hands of, of the police. You know, this this story, the, the fact that this and, and Koshka notes this in her piece where she says that, you know, she's been fighting this case for nine years, but she believes that the, the story of the Sarah Everard case helped to kind of give some more momentum to that case. And and perhaps even end up in this in this um, apology, which, as she outlines, is is not really acceptable. It's not sufficient to to what this case represents. And I think you know when we started having those conversations about police impunity with the Sarah Everard case and and gendered violence as well, or sexualized violence, as I would actually put it, because I think it's important to remember that this kind of sexualized violence doesn't just happen to women, it happens to men. Um, it happens to people of all genders as well in the policing system. But that Everard case is actually not the typical way in which people experience violence, including sexualized violence and harm um, at the hands of the police or within the policing system, the prison system. And I think it, it was it was quite useful for the Met Police to frame it as if that was an exceptional case and that is sort of the, the odd man out. That is the odd man out example. Actually, the vast majority of cases look, look a lot more like this one. And most of the people who are at the receiving end of it don't have the resources or the political expertise to, to bring it to public attention in the way that it has been in this case and to go through the grueling and dehumanizing and re-traumatizing process of trying to hold the police to account, of appealing the police, which even for Koshka, who is you know a highly educated, she's an academic, a highly educated white woman with a professional job, took her nine years. You know, the vast majority of victims of police harm, as she notes, don't have those kinds of social and cultural resources. And even with those resources, that struggle was absolutely unimaginable and it was difficult and it was traumatizing. And I think that that rare insight when we got to see the sort of CCTV footage of how the police were talking about her when they were, when they had her held, it gives so much insight into the logic underpinning the way the police operate that many of us sort of knew, but didn't have this kind of explicit evidence of. And it's that dehumanization of the people that they interact with, uh, the way that the people that they they designate or the state designates as criminal or criminal-like becomes so dehumanized. And I think it's, it's interesting that they use the phrase, do what you want, treat her like she's a terrorist. And it's when we create these kinds of categories, like criminal, like, you know, these kind of naming categories, where once you designate someone in that way, the amount of state violence that they can be subjected to is seemingly bottomless, with full backing by the state and even at times the public. 
And, you know, you have to remember that she was arrested for giving a bus card to a young man being stopped and searched. So they probably would have viewed her, you know, I think there was a political angle to this as well, and that they would have viewed her as a political criminal in a sense, because they would have viewed it as a political act against them, which likely fueled their venom towards her. You know, let's not forget when they were very brutally policing the Sarah Everard vigil, that wasn't disconnected from the fact that the Sarah Everard vigil was specifically about calling out the gendered and racialized violence that the police operate on. So I think this is an incredibly instructive case. And it's important that we, as you know, Throughout last year, we had some really important conversations about the amount of power that the police are given by our society and the lack of accountability and the ways in which we allow people who are designated in particular ways to be treated by the police. It's important to remember that this case is actually a lot more typical of and a lot more commonplace than the exceptionalized one that we heard a lot about last year. I think it's important to to remember that because it's in the interest of the police to sort of exceptionalize that one case, to exceptionalize the Sarah Everard case and say, there's nothing else to see here. When actually the experiences that we've read about, the experiences that are in the public eye now, thanks to that, that long struggle that Koshka had with the police, has now given us the ability to say, look, this is what has been happening to our communities all of these years. And these are the things that we've been gaslit about and told that no one's going to have sympathy for you because it's all that people, are, the public, the state, et cetera, are always going to take the police's word for it. So it's incredibly important for a movement towards transparency, accountability, and actually reducing the amount of power that the police have in our society, that this case is a really hopefully important step uh, towards that. I think that point about the police presumably seeing her as a political enemy is is important. I find it very persuasive. I also though just want to return to what they actually said. So police officer testimony said, if someone's not complying, not giving their details, they've either got learning difficulties or something to hide. Now, I mean, I assume potentially maybe he went on to say she clearly didn't have learning difficulties, so I can presume she had something to hide and he wouldn't just have also demanded a strip search of someone who had learning difficulties. But this idea that if you know your rights, because Koshka was just asserting her rights. She, she wasn't doing anything wrong. She was saying, you have no right to ask for my, for my details. And therefore that gave the police what they thought was the right to do absolutely anything to her. And until there was CCTV footage, they, they had the ability to do anything to her without facing any consequences whatsoever. And they've still only apologized for the words they used afterwards, not the original material strip search and, and the physical abuse or alleged physical abuse, I should probably say, for legal reasons. If you want to know more about this case, over on navaramediate.com, Koshka Duff has written a brilliant piece on her experience with the police. I do recommend you check that out, as well as this piece um, from June 2020. Here, Koshka and Tom Kemp ask whether defunding the police would work in the UK. Of course, incredibly relevant to the story we've been discussing today. Let's go on to our next story. Jeremy Corbyn has once again been rebuffed by the bureaucrats at the top of the Labour Party. An attempt to have the whip restored to the former leader was this week voted down at a meeting of Labour's National Executive Committee. The motion, which would have urged the Labour whips to readmit Corbyn to the parliamentary Labour Party, was defeated by 23 votes 
to 14, he will continue to sit as an independent MP. In response to the defeat of the motion, Corbyn tweeted, Today's NEC vote and Keir Starmer's ongoing decision to bar me from sitting as a Labour MP is disappointing. I am grateful for and humbled by the support I've received, especially from my Islington North constituents. The struggle for peace, justice and sustainability goes on. The issue of Corbyn and the whip is of particular significance when it comes to the Islington North Labour Party selecting their candidate for the next general election. If Corbyn remains without the whip, he will presumably be barred from standing. The decision by the NEC comes less than a week after Labour welcomed a Tory MP into the party with open arms. It was apparently made, or this decision about Corbyn was apparently made with little to no debate from those who opposed the motion. They simply voted against it without giving their reasons. Of course, the official line from the party is that Jeremy Corbyn cannot be readmitted to the PLP unless he apologises for the statement he released following the publication of the EHRC report into anti-Semitism. We can remind you of the post in question. Corbyn wrote... Anyone claiming that there is no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is wrong. Of course there is, and there is throughout society, and sometimes it is voiced by people who think of themselves as on the left. Jewish members of our party and the wider community were right to expect us to deal with it, and I regret that it took longer to deliver that change than it should. One anti-Semite is one too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. Everything Corbyn said in that statement is true, which is presumably why he has declined to apologise for it. In other news, at that same NEC meeting, it was revealed the Ford report would be delayed once again. The report was initially due to be published in July 2020, but 18 months later, there is still no date set for its release. The Ford inquiry commissioned in May 2020 was tasked with investigating the contents of a leaked internal report on the handling of anti-Semitism complaints in the party. That 851-page report, first covered by Navarra Media, alleged that former Labour staff had been working to undermine Corbyn's leadership, including by encouraging inaction in tackling anti-Semitism in the party. Dahlia, this decision by the NEC does not come as a surprise to me. I didn't really expect them to endorse Corbyn getting the whip back. But for how long do you think this, this position, this sort of awkward status quo is going to be sustainable? Look, the, the audience of this elongated theatre of punishment against Jeremy Corbyn is not the electorate. You know, the electorate might not have in 2019 wanted Jeremy Corbyn to be leader of the Labour Party, but I don't think that they necessarily felt that someone who has been, you know, a Labour MP for many, many, many years who actually on a lot of his individual positions, many people in the country agree with, um, and who, by all intents, by the admission of the very people who are leading the charge against Jeremy Corbyn, is a really good Labour constituency MP. You know, I don't think anyone can deny that. I don't think that the electorate really would feel very strongly that someone like that shouldn't be even a Labour MP. The audience for this is the commentariat, and it feels very much like the commentariat decide what positions it's okay for Labour to take and not to take. It's kind of that leading from behind logic that I think really dominates Keir Starmer's uh, strategy. And it's very uncomfortable to watch this when you think, when you compare 
the boldness and the ruthlessness with which Keir Starmer is treating Jeremy Corbyn compared to, I don't know, the Tories or compared to Wakeford, who was welcomed with open arms into the the Labour Party, despite his long history. Uh, Well, I mean, actually relatively short history because he's got a very short political career. But within that history was very much dominated by quite unequivocally race indications of racist ideologies and voting on very racist legislation, what I would consider to be racist legislation. So you compare that to the treatment of Jeremy Corbyn and you sort of look back and you think, what is what is lab- what are Labour values now in this context? But I think your question about whether or not this is a sustainable position is actually a really important one because when you think about okay, how could Labour potentially win another general election? There's lots of conversations about, you know, should the strategy be around getting Tory swing voters or should it be around getting people who have voted Tory to vote Labour or should it be more centred around galvanising people who don't typically vote to vote? That can be up for discussion, whatever. What isn't up for discussion is that constituencies like young people People of colour, people of migrant backgrounds are absolutely essential in order for Labour to win. You can't Labour, there cannot be a Labour government without those communities coming out for the Labour Party. And unfortunately, Jeremy Corbyn is liked by a significant number of a significant proportion of those constituencies. We have to remember that under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party increased to become the biggest party by members in Europe. And so the idea of throwing all of that away and being so eager to distance yourself from from that seems like cutting your nose off to spite your face. There is clearly a way in which Keir Starmer could have both marked his own vision out for Labour in in an attempt to recover some of the things that were lost and some of the, the voters that were lost, whilst also saying, you know, this is a broad coalition and the people that made up that significant chunk of Labour's history, Labour's recent history and Labour's base are still welcome in the party. And so why he's decided to go to just have no holes barred and this this no holes barred approach on making sure that it is very clear by taking this very extreme action, by making it very clear that all of those people are not welcome in the Labour Party, it feels like a very unnecessary, like presenting, if you're just looking at this from a purely electoral position, so take out the, the morality, take out the political whatever, just purely electoral strategy, it just seems like a really, one that's going to really, really backfire. So that question of sustainability from whatever your political standpoint is, if you want the Labour Party to be in government, that doesn't seem like a particularly sustainable strategy to to go ahead with. And it makes the Labour Party look really, really divided, which is also not something that is going to to be particularly electable to use that kind of framework. Definitely doesn't make the party seem like a particularly open-minded or welcoming place to have the former leader just not being allowed to sit as an MP. I think it's completely self-defeating. Let's talk about another development. 
because for Laura Pidcock, that decision about Jeremy Corbyn was the final straw. She has now resigned from the National Executive Committee. In her statement, she said, I promised fellow activists and friends I would stand for the NEC. I did this as a bridge from Corbynism to what we expected to be the next stage. We weren't to know exactly how Keir Starmer would handle matters within the party. What has ensued is a barrage of top-down changes which is making it hostile territory for socialists from those of us on the NEC to those in CLPs across the country. She goes on, to be really honest, the cheering of a Tory MP crossing the floor in the House of Commons, an MP who has voted against everything we believe in, crystallised the deep unease. What I have witnessed on the NEC has been immensely frustrating. This leadership is devoid of ideas, lacking vision. I can't and won't negotiate with these people anymore. The summit of their ideas are just small tweaks to the status quo. And she says, some people seem to think that we can negotiate our way to justice by appealing to the right of the party to do the right thing. That has never worked and certainly will not work in the current circumstances. And she concludes the statement by saying, I don't think politics is complicated and I think it is okay to act according to your feelings and passion. When I don't feel I am making a difference, I want to put my energy elsewhere and that is what I'm choosing to do. I'm hoping that later in the week we're going to talk to Laura Pidcock about that decision. What I would say about this, my initial thoughts about that resignation is when I started reading some of the comments, I was a bit like, well, I can see you saying, you know, negotiating with Keir Starmer doesn't really work. But what's the alternative? What, what does resigning achieve? And I kind of do feel that resigning doesn't achieve very much at all. But I also respect that final statement, Laura Pidcock saying, look, um, I think it's fine for me to prioritize how I use my time and do things which I think are politically useful. And for me, it's come to a point where being on the NEC does not seem politically useful anymore. If her resignation would mean that you know, a right winger would take her place and that the left would be even more marginalised in the party. I would think that would be a bit of a betrayal to the people who voted her into that position. As far as I understand, the next person on the list, so there isn't a by-election, it's just whoever was, um, I presume, 10th on the list for the NEC gets to take Laura Pidcock's place, which is apparently Anne Henderson, who was on the, the CLPD and Momentum list. So I imagine, if that's correct, that's what Sienna Rogers is reporting, then the votes will still go the same way. Whatever Laura Pidcock would have voted for, the person replacing her is probably going to vote the same. So I, I do feel like that kind of decision to say, look, there are different things I prefer to be doing with my time is, is a fair one. Let's go to our final story. The New York Times once described Jordan Peterson as the most influential public intellectual in the Western world. However, since 12 Rules for Life became a bestseller, the controversial philosopher has outed himself as, well... A bit of a fraud. Here he is giving some nuggets of wisdom to Joe Rogan. Hard to sort out. The climate change one is a weird one. So that well, one. Well, that's because there's no such thing as climate, right? Climate and everything are the same word. And I, that's what bothers me about the climate change types. It's like, this is something that bothers me about it technically. It's like, well, climate is about everything. So, okay. But your models aren't based on everything. Your models are based on Warming. a set number of variables. Yeah. So that means you've reduced the variables, which are everything, to that set. Well, how did you decide which set of variables to include in the equation if it's about everything? And that's not just a criticism. That's like, if it's about everything, your models aren't right. Because mm. your models do not and cannot model everything. Jordan Peterson. The words climate and everything do not mean the same thing. They are, they're different words with 
very different meanings. And that argument was completely ridiculous. We can get up the definition of, of climate for you. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary. The weather conditions prevailing in an area in general or over a long period. That's, that's not the same definition as the definition for everything. And the weather conditions prevailing in an area in general over a long period of time are not all things, which is why you can model them. When predicting future weather patterns, scientists can identify inputs which they know will affect outcomes. If there is more carbon dioxide, temperatures will rise. If there are fewer reflective surfaces on the Earth, for example, if ice melts, temperatures will also rise. These are two relevant inputs which affect the climate, and so they feed into models which tend to make pretty good predictions. Jordan Peterson, though, thinks those predictions are impossible because actually a decent climate model would have to contain as its inputs everything, absolutely everything, presumably including whether I decide to get drunk this weekend or which team wins the Premier League. This was supposed to be uh, the, the most significant intellectual in the Western world. Jordan Peterson is an example of someone who has made a lot out of very, very little. Like he's very much, he successfully managed to sort of package, you know, his status as just a sort of an academic, which, you know, there are lots of lots of academics in the world doing lots of different things. Um, he's at, and being an academic of, of quite a specific discipline, and he's managed to package that into a very generalized sense of, I can just be taken seriously on, on any topic, no matter how patently ill-equipped I am to contribute it, to it. And it's ironically, it's very unacademic. It's very unscholarly of him. And he, he mixes this, this very powerful concoction of of respectability of wearing a suit in in what looks like an underground bunker you know obviously his whiteness his masculinity these markers of of you know i'm legitimate i'm respectable you should listen to me he's packaged that with this kind of very boring nostalgia politics you know which is very easy very easy low-hanging fruit and this kind of self-victimizing narrative in order to sell a shit ton of self-help books. That's essentially the, essentially the Jordan Peterson uh, model. He's essentially a, a kind of an influencer. But unfortunately, whilst he might be patently shameless, he's also, he's, he's dangerous and he's somehow powerful because of that very mix of of sort of nostalgia, respectability, and, you know, touching on this sense of self-victimization. Because whilst he might not be the most extreme end of the culture war, you know, he's not a, a sort of a Milo Yiannopoulos, he's not a Alex, God, I've forgotten his name, the InfoWars guy. That's my, my brain sort of, that's self-care, the fact that I've just blocked his name out. But he has a really important function in that space because he's essentially a kind of gateway drug to the alt-right, into the far right. He's a character who can take people from a sort of curious position, kind of somewhat down-the-road position, into some, or, you know, someone who's sort of curious about how things in the world are changing, how the world around them is changing, how conversations around gender, around race, etc., are are moving and take them into some really dark places. And so even though whilst what he says might not sound as dangerous as a kind of Tommy Robinson type figure, because of that, that very strategic, his very strategic placement, which allows for both 
mass marketability, but also quite dark undercurrents, he's he's actually a very powerful figure in in public discourse, which is how that happened, honestly. Historians in the future will be like, what the fuck went on there? Because <laughs> like, I can't answer. <laughs> I think it was Alex Jones who you'd managed to purge from your memory. So oh, yeah. I'm well, well, sorry for, for putting him back in there. Super interesting points. I feel like maybe Jordan Peterson's sort of influence is declining because he, he sounds just more ridiculous now than he did a few years ago. I always thought his arguments weren't particularly persuasive, but this was... This was just so silly because also his argument used to be sort of against postmodernism saying, no, it's, it's not the case that power relations construct facts. Facts exist. We have to respect the scientific method. Now he's essentially saying we can't make any inferences or predictions because everything affects everything else, which is like a, a real sort of anarchic vision about knowledge. Uh, like Jordan Peterson would be suggesting you can't know anything. You might as well give up. If climate means everything, then, you know, Everything means everything and you can't know anything. The dude needs to relax, chill out. I'm not sure. I mean, he was in an induced coma for a while. So there are probably a lot of things going on in Jordan Peterson's life, but we'll leave it there. Let's wrap up tonight, Dahlia Gabriel. A pleasure as always speaking to you this evening. Yeah, lovely to be with you today, Michael. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.